Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 66. My name is Christopher Love. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with Chad Lovin, VP of Business Development at OpsWAD. Thank you for being on the show with us today, Chad. It's a real honor to have you here. Thank you, Chris. Uh, pleasure is all mine and happy to talk about uh, wherever the conversation takes us today. To get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? So uh, my day job is I'm the vice president of business development at OpSWAT. Uh, so OpSWAT is a, has been around for about 20 years, a very long time in the cybersecurity business. In my role, business development can mean a lot of nothing. I basically run the technology licensing business for OpSWAT. And that's basically how we got started. So we actually license our technology to most of the major cybersecurity vendors. If you've used a Cisco or a Palo Alto VPN, you've used OpsWAS technology. Our endpoint technology is deployed on about 150 million devices uh, through partners like that. And we also do uh, technology alliances. Uh, you know, again, like any good big enterprise cybersecurity vendor, we, we like to play well with others. And so I've got a team a little bit scattered all over North America. I'm based in Montreal, but the company is based in Tampa that runs that. And I've been with Offsort for about two years, been doing business with them forever for 15 years. But in one form or another, I've been in cybersecurity, basically before it was called cybersecurity. So uh, really what it was IT security <laughs> that far back. And, but, but really have been very heavily focused for most of my career in enterprise cybersecurity and especially malware threat detection uh, analysis and threat detection. Very cool. Whenever I prep for a new guest on the show, I always go take a look at their LinkedIn profile to get an idea of what their career looked like and to see if there's anything interesting to pull from there. It looks like you've had an extensive career that goes all the way back to 1989, where you were a co-founder and partner in Xenon Systems. Can you tell me a little bit about what Xenon Systems did and what the technological landscape looked like back then? Yeah, I'm really dating myself, but it, it is a great story because, you know, essentially I studied engineering as we, as we discussed earlier, and I never really got to act as an engineer uh, while I was while I was in school. You know, I was already inspired you know, by Bill Gates, Michael Dell, and these young guys at the time starting these companies in their basements. And uh, so myself and my, my, my business partner at the time, who is also electrical engineering from Concordia, we decided to essentially start a, a similar company, very, very basic stuff. We literally assembled computers for our friends was the, was the first iteration. But one great thing that happened to us is really not making any money uh, for the first couple of years, as, as happens when you start these companies. We stumbled across 3Com at the time. So for those of you that don't know 3Com, Bob Metcalf, the original pioneer of Ethernet, you know, the, basically the inventor of Ethernet, that was his company. And they had nobody really in Eastern Canada as a partner. So we became their partner. And it, it was a fantastic timing. It's one of those things would never, I, I think would not necessarily happen today. Two young kids, no experience, no money. And this major Silicon Valley startup, you know, essentially decides to give these two kids, you know, the, the rights to build the market. And that was a very fortuitous break for us. And then what became even better is Microsoft essentially acquired that networking technology. So what, you know, what we now know is all, all the Microsoft enterprise technology was really built on that 3Com technology. And so we just bounced from 3Com to Microsoft. And, you know, once Microsoft re released Windows NT and became a real enterprise player, frankly, we rode the coattails. And so we had a, a fantastic, um, you know, 10 years until we eventually uh, sold that uh, that company to TELUS, for those of you in Canada, major telecom. 
So it was a very nice run and then pivoted from that to, you know, essentially cybersecurity as we know it today. Oh, that's a great story. I love to hear the uh, upwards and onwards kind of success that comes from taking the plunge and starting your own business. It looks like the company got sold around 2000 then. Isn't that where the dot-com bubble started to come apart and eventually burst? What did your story look like going through that? Yeah, we we were not directly affected, quite frankly, because you know we we were very much a real business. We had to be. I mean, as as you can relate, I mean, you know, the, nobody was going to give, no VC was going to invest in a couple of kids at that time. I mean, it's a different story now, of course, but back then we had to just you know eat what we hunted. So the company was always profitable, always self funded. So we had good cash flow, and the acquirer, you know, was a was a cash rich telecom. So it was, I, I think, a you know, sort of a nice lesson that we. You know, the, the pendulum has kind of swung back to people recognizing the value of that. And so we, we were not really directly affected by the dot-com bubble, indirectly because, you know, we'd gotten into web development. So we had some dot-com companies that we were building storefronts for and things like that. But, you know, the enterprise business, our core enterprise customers were, were chugging along quite nicely regardless. Throughout your career, you filled many different roles in a wide variety of technology companies, mostly on the business side of house, marketing, sales, partnerships, but you're educated as an electrical engineer with a focus on control systems. Did you always know that your talents leaned more towards the business side of house? You know, I, I certainly always wanted to get into high-tech business, there's no question. And I, I was I was pretty mediocre in edu- engineer. I mean, that became pretty obvious when it came to do the finals and I was cribbing from people who were smarter than me and that was the only way I really scraped through. Having said that, you know, I think I think the technical background has been invaluable. I mean, you know, we could have a whole separate discussion as what you know what's going to serve you better in business. Is it going to be a law degree or an engineering degree? Maybe it's both. Because I mean, I probably I spend I think it's a, it's an asset for me in in doing what I do that I'm able to engage at a, at a pretty good technical level. You know, I'm able to communicate to sometimes a very skeptical audience. You know how it is when, you know, when you're dealing with people that run security operations centers, you're dealing with incident response people, you know, they can smell marketing waffle from a mile away. And you, you try to avoid that, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I, I am comfortable enough that I, I can avoid it. But uh, at the same time, I, it's, it's also true that I probably spend more of my day reading contracts than, you know, dealing with technology, which is unfortunate. And my engineering degree did not help me with interpreting, you know, non-disclosure clauses and non-competition clauses. But, you know, if, if I was to give career advice, I would probably just try to find a way to learn a bit of both, you know, because, um, but I, I definitely enjoy being out there with customers, with partners. And, you know, I, I certainly enjoy, you know, getting into the weeds on technology, you know, so, you, but I think it's better for everyone that I don't actually code. <laughs> yeah, that's some great advice, I think technical backgrounds really serve me, even though most of my day-to-day now is in marketing and in sort of that side of the house. But yeah, it lets me transmit our message in a way that our intended audience really understands it without the fluff. Yeah. And I, I like, you know, I, I didn't really know you guys till we met a Black Hat, of course, this is a background for the audience, but I do like a lot of what you guys do. Like, I think that really speaks to to what's worked for me in the past, you know, like having a building a ground up community you know, showing that you can contribute back to the community, showing that you have real technical value. You know, I, I think I think that's that is the way we have to go. I mean, you know, we we did it out of necessity. You know, in some of the startups ten or fifteen years ago, uh, but I, I think that's not just a necessity now. It's it's really the way uh, you you can be successful. You know, especially without relying on massive VC injections. Yeah, 
when I looked at your career history very early on, it looked like you were sort of in a general IT space. Was that just because there wasn't the term security yet? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny to think about the things we used to do, right? Like we used to put SQL servers like, you know, just online, you know, like have at it, you know, like (laughs) you know, there's username and password and you you cross fingers now for the best. And that was actually okay. There was really there was, you know, there was, you know, there was not the, um, you know, all the directed attacks that we have these days. So there, there was a lot of naivety, but certainly no reason to do otherwise at the time. But, you know, it's, so it's been a, a fantastic learning process, you know, especially with some of the companies I've been at. Uh, you know, you may have seen in a LinkedIn profile, we, we had a small EDR startup that got sold to RSA. And the reason RSA acquired us was, you know, I'm going back to about 2012 now. Was you know they they themselves were hacked by China. I mean uh, I know it's you know people are sometimes reluctant to give attribution, but I don't think there's any question that that was a state-sponsored attack by China, and that was one of the first supply chain attacks, if you like. We didn't even call it a supply chain attack, but that's really what it was. Where you know the the, the Chinese hacking group correctly identified a weak spot in the supply chain of the defense contractors. So RSA themselves were not the end target. But hey, guess what? All the people who worked on the F-35, starting with Lockheed Martin, were secure ID, you know, used secure ID by RSA. So by getting access to the seed code, Bob's your uncle, and you got the keys to the kingdom. So that was, you know, sort of fantastic to have a ringside seat to that. And, you know, of course, a a big, you know, learning lesson in terms of how the world has changed, uh, you know, especially in the last 10 years with the degree of, you know, intensity of the adversaries that we're facing. Yeah, the sophistication level is mind-blowing when I read about some of these larger hacks. And I know the F-35 leak was a big one. And you look at the fighter jets that China's flying these days, and you got to wonder where their inspiration came from, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, speaking of sophistication, I mean, it was I think it was just yesterday Microsoft disclosed how the, um, they lost the, uh, the keys, their keys to the kingdom. Oh, the signing keys. Yeah, the signing keys. Yeah. I mean, you know, you read through the steps that happened. I mean, you can't, you can't. I mean, I think you'd, you'd be in a glass house throwing a stone if you were to criticize Microsoft. I mean, and kudos to them for having that disclosure. But I mean, what the attacker had to do, the amount of patience, the amount of planning, the level of sophistication was was extraordinary. But, you know, that's what we're up against. Yeah. And it, I mean, you look at things like Stuxnet, too, and it goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know... Uh, so I don't know if you want anecdotes, but well, I'll give you one. You could always edit it out. But uh, I was I was at a uh, a conference about ten years ago in in Abu Dhabi, and a guy comes up to me and he says and he says I forget what his name is. Let's call him Farad for argument's sake. Comes up to me and says, you know, my name's Farad. I'm from Iran, and I'm the guy that found Stuxnet. So I had this fascinating conversation with. Him. <laughs> he was the guy that um, w- was brought in by the centrifuge o- operators. Uh, who said, you know, our centrifuges are blowing up. What the heck is going on? And, uh, you know, he he identified the sample. He said it to, I forget the name of the company in Eastern Europe, but it was actually a small Eastern European company that actually did the analysis. But he was the the person on the ground that identified that there was this file that was causing the issue. Wow. Yeah, it's such a fascinating attack that took place. And it was in two waves. And the amount of centrifuges they took out, I just, yeah. That's some high-level sophistication for sure. All right, so what I like to do with guests on the show after we get a chance to learn about what you do and your history is deep dive a topic around your expertise, you know, just based on what I've seen in your CV. 
I was thinking we could talk about go-to-market strategies. A lot of our listeners are sort of in that early stage startup environment, and I think they'd find it super valuable. So does that sound okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So what do you think companies should focus on at different stages from a marketing and sales perspective? What should you be doing when it's just a few people, maybe when it's a hundred and then when you get up to like a thousand, that enterprise level is the number of users, the better indicator or is revenue something you should be measuring off of? Those are all valid questions. I don't, I don't know if I can answer your question directly because, you know, there's a lot of other variables there, right? Did, you know, did you raise a hundred million bucks and does that mean you can coast for a year without revenue? Great. Uh, maybe that changes your tactic or are you bootstrapping and does every dollar count? You know, that's, that's, that's obviously going to determine which way you go. I think, you know, generically, one thing that is always very important is to you know ensure your product market fit. So whether you are have a free offering, and hopefully these days you do have a free offering. I think you know every enterprise vendor really has to seriously consider that if they're not already doing it. Not just a free trial, but you know something that you know anyone can adopt, get a taste, gets value out of, and then converts uh, up from that. And I think that's true regardless of the size or scale of the company. You know, like I said, without I'm a big fan of what's called product-led growth as as a as a strategy uh, because you know we were doing that really before it had a name again out of necessity 15 years ago, where you know when we first got into dynamic malware analysis, you know, we operated a free site. You know, you you submit a file, you get a malware analysis report, and then hopefully you liked what what you saw. And even if you can conversion rates are as you probably know, I mean, like you know the conversion rates can be single-digit percentages if you're lucky. Maybe they're even a fraction of a percent. But you can still have a remarkably successful business with those very low conversion rates because, you know, the reality is it's it's a little bit self-filtering, right? You know, the, the rest of them are never going to convert anyway. But hey, at least you build goodwill, you build some word of mouth. You know, maybe maybe half those people are students or interns, but, you know, sooner or later they end up working at a Fortune 500 or, you know, major cybersecurity vendor and they'll, they'll remember. So I think that's that's universally true regardless of the stage you're at. And I also think it's universally true that our our customers are. We should never, you know, conversely to the to the um, expression. I think you should never, you know, underestimate your customers' intelligence. You know, we we deal in a business which is full of very smart people, very informed, and you know they are going to sniff, you know, the excrement fairly quickly. So you 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 know, I think the age of you know. You know the BSDs, as we used to call them. I'll, I'll leave it to the you know to the listener to Google that term. But the the day when you the day when you could you know hire expensive salespeople, send them out into the world, and and hope for the best is is gone. You know, again, you know, drawing on my RSA experience, you know, we we I came from a very small startup, lumped into a very large division of an even bigger Fortune 500. You know, we had seven private jets. <laughs> That's how big the company was. Wow. Uh, that would ferry CIOs to executive briefings and all this kind of stuff. Even they, and it's no secret, I mean, this is all public, EMC and RSA really didn't make it. You know, they really didn't succeed with that model, despite, you know, essentially bottomless resources. And if I can throw some more anecdotes in, one thing I saw at RSA, even though it wasn't directly involved in the authentication business, you know, most people know about RSA as the secure ID fob guys, fantastic business, you know. Uh, really invented, you know, multi-factor, well, two-factor authentication uh, uh, as a commercial enterprise product. We got our business eaten out from underneath us by by Duo, by Duo Security, now part of Cisco. And there was a, a lot of complacence because, you know, Duo, very famously, I think you could get 
maybe still can. I think you get up to 10 users free of Duo security. And the complacency inside RSA was, hey, you know, well, you know, we're, we're dealing with the Fortune 500, you know, we're dealing with 10,000, 20,000 licenses at the time. This 10 user free offering, really not a threat to us. They were obviously completely wrong because, you know, <laughs> because that's how they, they got these fantastic fanatical adopters, you know, uh, departmental, um, you know, people who were their best salespeople, Jews' best salespeople were the people that, you know, bought that 10 user, didn't buy it, who got that 10 user free and they pushed and they pushed and pushed until eventually the whole wall crumbled and they got their entire enterprise to flip to Duo and no longer a secure ID customer. So, you know, I can go on and on with those kinds of anecdotes, but that's why I'm, I'm a true believer in that model. Oh, I agree with you 100%. Do you have any thoughts on what you're seeing from the vendor market as a whole? We just met at Blackhead, as you mentioned earlier. There was an awful lot of money spent trying to get people's attention. Was there anything that stood out to you? You know, I think there's still too much money chasing ideas that I am not convinced are fully baked. You know, again, this is my own, you know, maybe skepticism of being in the industry a little too long. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not the first person to use this phrase, but I think there were definitely companies that had features, not products. I think, you know, we clearly are maybe in a perennial phase of consolidation and, you know, customers want not just, not suites necessarily, right? Because, I mean, if you want a suite, great, you can go to Cisco and or Palo Alto, whoever, but, you know, you might end up with, you know, products in that suite that maybe aren't that great. But, you know, you definitely need tight integration, interoperability that I think is absolutely critical. And if you don't have that story, then that's going to be a lot tougher for you. So I think those companies that were going there with you know very, very isolated point solutions that might solve a, a specific problem in some circumstances, I think those ones you know could be in for a bit of a struggle. But other than that, I mean, you know I think we, I think we still have a healthy business. you know that's also clear. <laughs> you know I think and you know if we look at our own numbers, uh, you know the enterprises are spending. Maybe other tech companies are cutting back a little bit on the spend, but you know the enterprise customers and the government customers. I mean that that spend is is continuing. When you look at all the noise at Black Hat, do you think it's still possible for a new cybersecurity startup to break through and become a multi-billion-dollar publicly traded company, or have we entered a phase where larger companies will just continue to acquire the small, innovative ones? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, it's I think it's possible. I think it's a lot tougher. You know, because there's, you know, there's so much VC money, for better or for worse, you know, uh, than even 10 years ago, so quickly filling these niches. Most of those niches won't survive, that's fine. But, you know, amongst those niches, some of them will thrive. But, you know, there's also reality that, you know, the not just the fangs, but, you know, the, you know, there's, there's a, there's a small group of consolidators, you know, and again, not necessarily household names, open text, Fortra, companies like this that are, are are rolling up companies. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you've started your company and, you know, Fortra open text hands you a big check, you're, you're probably pretty happy. But, you know, the path to going public is certainly a much, much higher bar. You know, um, I mean, I think for a company to go public these days with less than 100 million ARR is probably a struggle. And, you know, getting to 100, north of 100 million ARR Plus having that cumulative growth, plus having all the metrics right, is 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 a, a slog. I mean, you look at, you know, again, public knowledge, right? Sentinel One, you know, they did all the right things, they went public, but even they, with as good a technology they have, as good a story they have, even they are, you know, kind of struggling in the public market now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a lot of, of the Titans fell this year, I think, in the last 12 months. Yeah. Although conversely, of course, I mean, CrowdStrike is thriving, right? So, I mean, but it's, I think, I think CrowdStrike very successfully threaded a very narrow window, you know, in terms of raising the right amount of money with the right backers, you know, fantastic financials now, but, you know, a couple of years ago, they were, they were spending way too, you know, bleeding money like crazy, but whether by happenstance or brilliance, they, they ended up on the right side of that with, with a, you know, a fantastic financial picture. What do you think is the most important thing that cybersecurity companies need to communicate to their potential customers? Should we be selling features, the outcomes, or should we be selling the vision? Well, if I had to pick between those three words, I would say outcomes. And I, I think most of us, and I'm not going to excuse, exclude myself from this, I, I think I, I don't think we do a very good job of communicating outcomes. You know, it's 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 so easy to focus on the features, right? Especially when you're an engineer or a programmer. It's like, I made this great feature and I want to tell you all about it. But even if your audience is very technical, they themselves, you know, they have to get approvals from somebody who's, you know, in finance, you know, somebody who's running a budget. And I, I think you do, you do your own customers a big favor if you can help them communicate what is the outcome this solution provides. And I, I see very, very few companies doing that well, to be honest. And, and again, I'm not going to say that we necessarily do it well either. But you know, if, if I was to give advice, I would, I would say, you know, really focus on defining what is the outcome you're providing that is better than what they already have. You know, because your, your competition could be complacence, it could be open source could be some legacy product, you know, what is, make sure you understand also what is, what is there by default, because it isn't necessarily your competitor's product you're competing against. Yeah. So stop breaches might be a good marketing term after all. It's not bad, uh, but you know, too broad because <laughs> everyone says that, um, nobody believes it anymore or nobody should believe it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're probably not stopping a breach. Let's be honest. Um, maybe, <laughs> Maybe you're reducing the risk of a breach. Maybe you're allowing quicker response to a breach. Uh, but I, I personally would not use a generic tagline like that. And if that appears somewhat on, somewhere on Offsort's website, and it may, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to throw my colleagues under the bus, but I, I would not myself write copy uh, that says something as generic and broad as that. Yeah, I was actually taking a dig at CrowdStrike there because I think it's a uh, we stop breaches. <laughs> 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 that's pretty ambitious of them. That's, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe they, and they certainly do in some circumstances, but, you know, eh, you know, making a blanket claim is a stretch. Yeah. Okay. So the last one I have for you, I ask of everybody on the show, uh, I can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? Yeah. Um, it, uh, I think it's not a brilliant prediction. I mean, I think we are going to see more consolidation. I think we're seeing, you know, the, the current uh, consolidation, if you like, the reduced funding. Like, if you look at the trends in funding, I mean, it's definitely on a big downturn. The IPO markets are a lot tougher. Not good for a lot of people, but I think the silver lining of all of that is we are going back to basics. You know, there's a lot more value being placed on companies that deliver real revenue and deliver real value. You know, so I, I, th- I see that as very positive, you know, that we're, we're, we're really focusing on hopefully really solving a solution. Because let's face it, as an industry, we haven't been super great, right? Like, you know, here we are 20 years later, you know, if, if some dedicated, you know, Chinese group wants to hack into Microsoft, we've seen that they can, you know, so uh, are we successful? 
not so far. You know, hopefully we've raised the bar a little bit. Hopefully we've made things more difficult. But again, I, I want to be optimistic that focusing more on the, on the basics in our business will help us be more successful as an, as an industry in, in terms of truly you know, living up to CrowdStrike's tagline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, when the uh, tide goes out, you can see who's wearing shorts. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's quite several people that, that aren't, <laughs> several companies, uh, that's clear. Uh, you know, that's okay, right? I mean, it's, it needs to happen every now and then. So, uh, you know, I, I, I personally have, don't, don't view that as a negative. Awesome. Well, Chad, thank you. This was a great conversation and I really appreciated meeting you and uh, look forward to chatting again in the future at some point. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate the invite and uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. Cheers. All right. See you. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.